Though you might not be too familiar with these verses, if you're a patriotic American, you have heard a song that was inspired by their message. The music was written by a rowdy band of soldiers at the outset of the Civil War. Originally, the tune was called John Brown's Body, mocking one of the soldiers. It amounted to a bar tune used to rally the war-wearied morale of the Union troops. But one day in November 1861, a devout abolitionist named Julia Ward Howe heard the song played by a military band during a troop review outside of Washington. The melody stuck in her mind. That night, she awoke from sleep inspired with lyrics. Stanzas began to uh, intertwine in in her head as she lay there in the bed. She jumped up. She found a pen, and she scrawled the words to a song before she forgot them. And what words was it that she wrote? Here they are. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. And then the chorus, glory, glory, hallelujah, our God is marching on. It's actually Isaiah 63 set to music. You and I recognize Julia Howe's lyrics as the battle hymn of the Republic. For Americans, it's one of our favorite hymns. It's played at most patriotic celebrations. Interestingly, it was Winston Churchill's favorite song. The battle hymn was played at the memorial for the 9-11 victims in the week following the terrorist attacks. It's featured at most presidential inaugurations. And these were the last recorded words of Martin Luther King Jr. on the night before his assassination. He said, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Hal's lyrics have a long and storied history. This picture in Isaiah 63 of Jesus in the wine press trampling his enemies is embedded in American culture. Surely when Julia Ward Howe was awakened that night with these lyrics forming in her head, she had previously been reflecting on Isaiah 63 or perhaps Revelation 19. At the time, it was the start of the Civil War. This conflict loomed large. Much was at stake. Julia and her husband had been working tirelessly to put an end to slavery. But now that war was imminent, she wondered how many men would have to die. Perhaps she turned again to her Bible for comfort. She reflected on the final war, the war that will end all wars. For at the battle of Armageddon, Jesus will come a second time. He'll move swiftly and justly. I'm sure Julia hoped that her war would be just but swift. Revelation 19 sees into the future. And it describes the return of Jesus Christ to earth. Heaven opens, and Jesus is seen on the back of a white horse. Not a show pony, not a race horse, not even a work horse, but a war horse. John doesn't see Jesus descending, floating down from heaven on fluffy, puffy, cumulus clouds. He's on the back of a stallion. It's been bred for battle. It's shaking its mane 
and it's stomping its hoofs. Hot breath billows out of its nostrils. Revelation 19 verse 11 says of its rider, In righteousness he judges and makes war. At his first coming, Jesus entered Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, a beast of burden, the chief servant among the animal kingdom. But there is no donkey this time. Jesus isn't coming to serve, but to slay. His patience has been tapped out. His mercy has been rebuffed for the last time. Now he comes to judge and make war and to do so righteously. In Isaiah 9, verse 6, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. But apparently he gets that title only after he kills off all his enemies. For this Prince of Peace is no pacifist. When Jesus returns to this earth, he'll be coming to bust chops, take names, and start breaking kneecaps. Earlier in Isaiah's prophecy, in chapter 42, verse 13, it declares, The Lord shall go forth. Like a mighty man, he shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. He shall cry out, yes, shout aloud. He shall prevail against his enemies. Revelation 19 provides an ominous description of our Lord Jesus in that day. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And in addition, names are ascribed to Jesus, faithful and true, the Word of God. And then on his robe and thigh is the name, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's when the writer of Revelation, John the Apostle, reveals his source material For he's been reading Isaiah 63. And in Revelation 19, verse 15, John writes this of Jesus. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. It's the same imagery of divine judgment we find in the passage before us. Isaiah 63. Think of the wicked inhabitants of this earth as grapes. And this world as a wine press full of grapes. There will come a day when God will finally put his foot down. Like a vineyard worker crushing the grapes between his toes, Jesus will tread or trample the wicked of this earth under his feet. Their blood splatters on his robe. Granted, this is not gentle Jesus. This is not baby Jesus. This is not Jesus blessing the children or Jesus breaking the bread. This is the Lord Jesus breaking the stiff necks of evildoers who won't stop sinning against God and man. And if Jesus is king, he has to take this action. He must take this action. Humanity can't just walk into eternity hell-bent on robbing and raping and cheating and swindling. That wouldn't be heaven. That would be hell. I'm sure you've seen the bumper sticker, Visualize World Peace. Well, to really do so, visualize this. Jesus annihilates Satan and all who join in his rebellion. He retakes the reins of a runaway planet. He conquers his enemies, establishes his kingdom, 
and enforces obedience to his sovereign will, then and only then will we realize world peace. One Saturday night, I was on an airplane. I'd taken a red eye from California to Atlanta so I could preach to you that next morning here at Calvary Chapel. Well, as I was on the airplane, I was working on my sermon for the next day, and I was teaching on a passage in Revelation. Well, unbeknownst to me, while I was typing away on my computer, the young lady next to me was looking over my shoulder. Well, finally, she blurted out, How can you say Jesus crushes his enemies and breaks their stiff necks? How can you say that? That doesn't sound very Joel Osteenish. Now, I'm not picking on Joel, but that's just what she said to me. In her mind, she had limited the concerns of Jesus to feeding the poor and caring for the elderly and making us all happy. She just couldn't imagine why Jesus would prioritize holiness and justice and what's right. She had pushed obeying God to the back of the bus. And let me tell you how I responded to her. I told this lady that one day God will do to a rebellious people what he has already done to his own son Jesus. The father sentenced Jesus to crucifixion. The price of sin is death. Thus Jesus died in our place. At the cross, he pardoned our sin, and he satisfied God's justice. Judgment is unnecessary now if we trust in Jesus. This means that when Jesus returns, every death will be a senseless suicide. No one has to die. People do so because they reject Jesus and resist his authority. They put themselves under God's wrath. And this is what we find in Isaiah 63 at the second coming of our Lord Jesus. Remember, Isaiah lived 800 years before John. Yet his prophecy gives us details that John didn't envision. In fact, the Old Testament prophets often saw more than the New Testament writers. John saw heaven open and he saw Jesus coming with an army. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 adds that Jesus will destroy the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth and with the brightness of his coming. Both New Testament writers are reporting on the battle, but it seems to me from the press box, from the overview, it's Isaiah, it's the other Old Testament prophets who get up close, who give us a a personal glimpse. Isaiah is embedded with the troops, you could say. He's a war correspondent filing reports from the battlefield. And he sees that Jerusalem is in trouble. The Lord has his watchmen on the walls. Isaiah knows that the city is surrounded. The prophet Joel identifies the center stage of the final battle. He calls it the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's right in the heart of Jerusalem, what we call the Kidron Valley. For Jerusalem's sake, God will not rest. It'll be time to act. Isaiah 62 verse 11 states, Say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work is before him. Jesus, the Savior, is coming to reward the righteous and to repay the wicked. (laughs) Do you remember in Matthew 24, Jesus warned the Jews of the last days. He said, when you see the abomination of desolation, 
spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. This abomination that causes desolation refers to the antics of the evil Antichrist. And it's his army that attacks Jerusalem and forces the Jews to escape to the mountains of Edom. Edom is the region southeast of Jerusalem. Basra is its capital. You know, the last battle is often called Armageddon. But Har Megiddo, or the mountain of Megiddo, is just a staging area. The battle is over Jerusalem. That's the prize. And the Jews who are protected are hidden southeast in Edom. You see, the final battle covers all of the promised land from north to south. The enemy camps in the north. Refugees flee to the south. Jesus returns in the middle to Jerusalem. Our Lord will descend onto the Mount of Olives to the very same spot from where he ascended 2,000 years ago. Revelation 14 verse 20 speaks again of his treading out the grapes. He says, The winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. That's 200 miles. Incidentally, 200 miles is the length of Israel from north to south, Megiddo to Basra. John foresees all Israel, each of her pleasant valleys, filled with blood. And here in Isaiah 63, the prophet beholds our King Jesus at the end of the battle. The forces of Antichrist have now been annihilated. The Jews who obeyed and fled have now been rescued. The revolt that has raged for ages between, a, between sinful men and a holy God has finally been decided. The coup has been struck down. Jesus Christ has won. And Isaiah says proudly of God's champion, Look at him! Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? The one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Can you hear the pride and the praise in his voice? Jesus is the conquering hero. And he looks the part. Isaiah says, he's glorious in his apparel. That's another way of saying of a soldier. He's a credit to his uniform. He's also traveling in the greatness of his strength. I picture Jesus marching boldly. Nothing cocky, mind you. Nothing strutting. But he strides with confidence and strength. He carries himself with class and dignity and honor. And then Isaiah asks Jesus a question. He says, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? See, Jesus is fresh from battle. He's been stained in the winepress. His robe is covered in a reddish stain. Have you ever spilt wine or grape juice on a white shirt? You can forget about ever getting it completely out, can you? Expect a permanent stain. That wine is almost like a dye. But there's one substance that stains worse than wine, and that's blood. In fact, there are companies today that specialize in cleaning crime scenes and removing the blood. And Jesus has gotten bloody. He's been to battle. Isaiah notices the stains on his garments. 
He has been to the winepress of judgment. He has trampled the bodies of faithless men. And understand, Jesus makes no apologies here. He offers no disclaimers or justifications for his lethal actions. Only modern man is fuzzy about God's judgment. We we are the ones who have excused our sin and denied our sin and renamed our sin and ignored its penalties and have convinced ourselves that God doesn't really care, even though he's warned us that he very much does so. Jesus answers Isaiah, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. And boy, did it get messy. For their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. After seeing this firsthand, Isaiah could have now sung with Julia Ward Howe. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. But here is the main point of this morning's lesson. I want to draw your attention to what else Jesus says at the end of verse 1. When Isaiah asks him, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra, this one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength? Jesus answers Isaiah, but look at how he identifies himself. It's I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Here Jesus is, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's just proven his supremacy. He has beaten all challengers. He has conquered all rivals. Every uprising he has put down. And there is no guilt in his heart. Though his robes are splattered with the blood of men, not one drop is innocent blood. He bears no blame. His judgment has been just. He has defended God's people and God's honor. And when Isaiah inquires, the Messiah answers, This is I who speak in righteousness. Jesus is back from the battle, but it's clear he's done right in every instance, in all that he's performed and in all that he has spoken. Let me reiterate, when all the blood has been spilt and when the birds are feeding on the flesh of wicked men, at last Jesus will stand righteous. No one will question the justice of his judgments or the fairness of his tactics. He will have pleased the Father in all He's done. In that day, expect the Father to say yet again, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. In that day, listen for the angels. Perhaps they'll repeat the praise that they spoke at His birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. In that day, all of us, all people everywhere will join in and sing Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. But realize, that's not what Jesus says. He doesn't talk about his decisive victory, or his righteous warring, or his long-awaited judgment, or even the vindication of God's glory, or the upholding of God's holiness. 
He's not sorry for what's happened, but there is some remorse for what could have been. For even when the final chapter is written, Jesus identifies himself not as mighty to conquer or mighty to judge, but as mighty to save. To the end, this is what presses on him most, not his skill to fight and war and judge, but his ability to save. Recall in Isaiah 9, the prophet lists a whole repertoire of names for Messiah. Wonderful, Counselor, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, even Mighty God. But when it's all said and done, Jesus isn't focused on being Mighty God. He relishes being Mighty to save. In the verse that I read earlier, Isaiah 42, verse 13, it speaks of Jesus. The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up his zeal like a man of war. Jesus is a mighty man. Look at him in battle. He is mighty in war. It's no surprise that Jesus, the God-man, God-made flesh, is referred to as both mighty God and mighty man. Yet when he refers to himself, it's mighty to save. Read through the Gospels and you'll discover that Jesus was mighty in a million ways. He was mighty in wisdom. Jesus corrected the scholars, and he confounded the skeptics, and he comforted the sinners, and he taught his disciples. Jesus was mighty in power. He calmed the raging sea and walked on water and multiplied the fish and bread and healed the sick and raised the dead. He was mighty in spirit. He resisted the tempter, even when he was at a point of great weakness. He, he kept his composure when tried before Pilate. Remember, even on the cross, he prayed for his accusers. He asked his father to forgive them. Jesus was mighty in discernment. With the woman at the well, Jesus steered the conversation to coax her into examining her own soul. He read the hearts of people, often knowing their thoughts before they even spoke. And Jesus was mighty in the scriptures. He had a command on God's word. He spoke simply yet powerfully. He taught like no one else with an authority from God. But here in Isaiah 63, at the end of the age, Jesus doesn't identify himself as mighty in wisdom or mighty in power or mighty in spirit or mighty in discernment or mighty in the scriptures. No, he calls himself mighty to save. And this is the heart of Jesus. Here is what makes him tick. If you're looking for a motive of this, he is definitely guilty. Jesus is mighty to save. He loves saving people. This is his heart. It has been all along, and it will be forever. He loves saving people, and he's good at it. In fact, there is no one he can't save. Zacchaeus, the tax collector, you remember him. He was a short little guy with a long list of sins. He betrayed his fellow Jews to strong arm for Rome. He defrauded his own people and took more tax than was necessary. He was a greedy little guy. Jesus first saw Zacchaeus up in a sycamore tree. Zacchaeus had climbed up the tree for a better look, but it was Jesus who looked into his heart. He took an interest in this man, this man who had cut himself off from others and had burned all the bridges. Jesus built a bridge to him. 
When Jesus showed up at Zacchaeus' house, people criticized. He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. And of course he did. Jesus is mighty to save. And who else needs to be saved but sinners? Jesus forgave Zacchaeus. And it felt so good. Zac made restitution so he'd be forgiven by all the people he'd defrauded. The visit Jesus paid to Zacchaeus' house changed this little man's life forever. And in Luke 19, Jesus explains his motive in the matter. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. In fact, Jesus is mighty to save. Of all the things that Jesus is mighty in doing, he is mightiest to save. Think of all the examples. The woman taken in adultery, caught in the very act, naked and angry and fuming as they threw her down at Jesus' feet. Yet he showed this woman mercy and gave her a brand new start. Or the puzzled rabbi Nicodemus. Nicodemus couldn't figure it out. How can a man be born again? Once you leave your mother's womb, there's no going back. Yet Jesus pointed him to the Holy Spirit and to faith in God's Son. And what about the lame man lowered through the roof? Again, Jesus was mighty to save. Not only did Jesus heal the man's crippled legs, but he forgave his sins. And Mary Magdalene, her heart was a hostile for seven demons, and yet Jesus, mighty to save, evicted them all. And what about Saul of Tarsus? I mean, this was the Jewish rabbi who hated all things Jesus, especially his followers. In fact, Saul was en route to Damascus to kill Christians when Jesus himself appeared to him on the roadside. It was as if Jesus looked up from heaven and picked out the most unlikely convert he could find. He saw Saul breathing threats and murder, says the scripture. I mean, this would be like Jesus saving the chief imam of ISIS or its top terrorist. Just to show off his amazing grace, Jesus intercepts Saul, and in one glorious moment, he chooses him and saves him and calls him. In fact, years later, Saul, now named Paul, explains that this is exactly what happened. He writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, and for this reason I obtain mercy. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show a pattern to those who are going to believe on him. In Paul, Jesus set a precedent. He picked out the biggest, vilest bully on the block and saved him. Paul is saying, Jesus came to save sinners and to prove from the start that he's mighty to save. He saved me. I want you to know, my eyes have seen things. I have seen the most unlikely people saved by our Lord Jesus. People that you would have never dreamed. People who'd been drugged through the dregs of this world, who had fully embraced the dark side, who had shaken their fist in God's face. Mean people. People addicted and shameful and perverted and greedy and hateful. I have seen people who fit those descriptions be saved. Never think anyone is a hopeless cause. That he or she is beyond the reach of our Lord Jesus. They're not. Many years ago, my wife and I, we were walking out of a movie theater. There was a bar right next door. And the Lord prompted me to witness to the guy who was out front collecting the cover charges. 
Well, when I finally mustered the courage to obey, he'd already gone back into the bar. So I went after him. He had moved from money collector to now bartender. I approached him and I asked if I could talk to him. I explained to him that God had prompted me to tell him about Jesus. I'll never forget this big man. He looks at me and now there's tears streaming down his face. And he says, but what if I murdered someone? He said it as if he had. I looked him straight in the eye and I said to him, there is nothing you've done that Jesus won't forgive. Nothing. And I believe that. I really do. Jesus is mighty to save. Years ago, I read that Jeffrey Dahmer had become a Christian. Did you read this? Back in the 1990s, Dahmer was one of America's most notorious serial killers. He was known as the Milwaukee Cannibal for dismembering his victims and worse. Well, the story goes, once he completed his confession, he asked the detective for a Bible. After reading it and speaking to a chaplain, he gave his life to Jesus. In May 1994, Dahmer was baptized in a prison whirlpool. A couple of months later, he was shanked by another inmate. Was his conversion sincere? Was it real? Well, only God knows. But is it possible? Absolutely. Could a man guilty of cannibalism and worse end up next to you in heaven? You bet he can. Yes and yes. You might recoil from the thought, but Jesus is mighty to save. And for him to save the likes of me, I can't resent him saving whoever he chooses to save. I just know salvation is his specialty. Saving sinners is in Jesus' wheelhouse. If a person is truly sincere and genuinely desires to change and trust Jesus with all his heart, there is nothing that Jesus won't forgive. You know, sometimes when you find a forgiving soul, it's actually an evidence of their weakness. Oh, they're a pushover. They're just soft, really. They would rather just drop the offense than deal with the legitimate injustice. They have no moral fortitude. Forgiveness is their pathology. It's their sickness. You know, there are people not strong enough to confront other people. They just capitulate and they explain their cowardice as forgiveness. Believe me, this is not Jesus. He speaks and does what is righteous. There is no weakness in him. Recall, he is glorious in apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Jesus is never manipulated. He's never conned. He has no problem with confrontation, trust me. One day, he will trod down sinners in his anger. He'll trample sinful people in his fury. There is no need for me to soften those words. It's right there in your Bible. Just read it for yourself. It's what Isaiah says. Jesus is nobody's pushover. When you give him no choice, when you harden your heart and stubbornly go your own way, he isn't queasy. He has a heart to save, but he has a stomach to judge. Rest assured, Jesus forgives, not from any kind of weakness, mind you, but from his strength. He is mighty to save. Here's the good news. On the cross, a price was paid. Willingly, Jesus laid down his life for sinful men. 
God continues to see His image in us. It's amazing. For some reason, we're still the object of His love. God planned for our salvation before time began. It was Jesus' job to carry it out, and He has done so in earnest. In fact, our text tells us that this is what will characterize Jesus until the end of time, that He is mighty to save. And realize this prowess to save doesn't just mean that Jesus is able to reach low to the slimy sinner, bottom fish, so to speak. No, Jesus can save the man in the gutter for sure. But that's not all this means. To say that Jesus is mighty to save means that his salvation extends from the guttermost to the uttermost. I love Hebrews 7 verse 25. It tells us, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. It's not just about the extent from which Jesus saves. It's about the extent to which Jesus saves. Realize, when when you get to heaven, you'll never hear anyone make the comment, Whoo, that was a close call. Ooh, I got in by the skin of my teeth. You'll never ever hear that. Nobody barely gets saved. Jesus is mighty to save. This means that the person he saves is genuinely and eternally and fully and freely and deeply and lavishly and unequivocally saved. If you're forgiven by the blood of Jesus, then you're as forgiven as you'll ever be. God doesn't assign parole or offer probation. He only passes out complete pardons. It's like a pregnancy, ladies. You can't be partially pregnant. Nobody says, well, I'm barely pregnant. And likewise, you can't be barely saved or partially saved. You're either saved or you're not. Our Lord Jesus is mighty to save. That means that he covers all the bases. He's attentive to all the details. Nothing slips through the cracks or escapes his notice. His salvation is comprehensive and guaranteed. For example, Jesus forgives all our sin, past sin, present sins, even future sins we haven't even committed yet. Well, certainly we need to live in faith and repentance. But even our future sin has been washed by the blood of Jesus when we come to know him. Jesus pays for it all. His salvation is comprehensive coverage. It includes forgiveness and acceptance and peace in your heart and restoration for your life and healing for your body and joy for your soul and wisdom for your mind. It includes the baptism and power of the Spirit, spiritual gifts, streets of gold, and riches untold. It's all in the policy. You just need to get busy reading the print. If you're not experiencing a full and free salvation this morning, you're living below your privileges. Jesus provides for our victory. Our agent is mighty to save. Recently, a Tokyo woman was saved by the combined effort of all of her fellow commuters. Apparently, this very skinny lady had fallen through the 8-inch gap that's between the train and the platform in the Tokyo subway station. It was a Monday in the middle of rush hour traffic. A public announcement that a passenger had been trapped caused 40 people to rise up, to muscle up. 
The train has a suspension that allows it to lean. And so her fellow passengers pushed the 32-ton train away from the platform to allow just enough room for this woman to escape. She was pulled to safety. Her salvation was a community effort. But your salvation was not. It was accomplished by one person and one person alone. Notice what Jesus says to Isaiah when he comes up from Basra. I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. The fury he unleashes, the righteous anger he demonstrates is very personal. Did you know when you sin, it's a personal affront to Jesus? And when he deals with sin, no one is with him. He does this all by himself. It's personal to him. You know, while on earth, Jesus went out of his way to get other people involved in his work. When he healed the sick, he often recruited the help of others. When he raised Lazarus, remember, he asked other folks to help move the stone from off the mouth of the tomb. When he multiplied the loaves and fish, he used a little boy's lunch. Jesus was always involving other people in his exploits, but not here. What an irony. When the billions of cries for justice have been ringing in God's ears for centuries, and when he finally answers them, he does so by one person who is mighty to save. And this brings up a vital point. When you get angry over injustices that you see, and when you become concerned that evil men might be getting away with their crimes, well, certainly report it, work the system, take the proper channels. God created government to keep evildoers in check. But once you've done all that the law of the land allows, don't go further and take matters into your own hands. Romans 12 verse 19 tells us, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There is only one person that God has trusted with final judgment, and that is His Son, Jesus. The one who is mighty to save is the only one God has allowed to mete out and execute His righteousness. And there's a big reason Jesus does this work solo. It's because his work to save was also done all by himself. No one went to the cross with Jesus. Salvation was no tag team effort. Jesus needed and asked for no one else's help. He died alone. He bore our sin all by himself. It wasn't 40 people pushing the bus so you could be saved. Only one brave Savior did all the heavy lifting. On an overseas flight, two men, they were talking to each other. They had seated right next to each other on the plane. There was a Christian, and, and the other man was a Hindu. The subject eventually came around to religion. Well, at one point, the Christian asked him, he said, Can you give me a single sentence, a one-liner that captures the essence of your faith? Well, the Hindu man said, Yes. We are all part of the problem, and we are all part of the solution. Well, the Christian man thought for a long time about the man's answer. Finally, he answered. He said, would you like to hear a one-liner that captures the essence of the Christian faith? The Hindu man said, yes. The Christian replied, we are all part of the problem, but there is only one man who is the solution, and his name is Jesus. 
in God's plan for the ages, Jesus does two things solo. He hangs on a cross to author our salvation, and he treads out the wine press to bring about God's ultimate judgment. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He has trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. But Jesus has a greater glory. He says so himself. And I hope we all have ears to hear deep in our soul this morning. For Jesus the Messiah is mighty to save.